Welcome to the Auditorium, a portal to the fringes of culture. Well, hello and welcome to episode eight of the Auditorium podcast with myself, Dr. David Bramwell, and my beautiful assistant. Hello. I'm Dr. David Mountford. Well, I'm not. I'm Mr. I want to be doctor, but I'm not. I'm just Mr. Well, you're going to have to do a bloody PhD to get your... You or, can't just go around calling yourself a doctor. No, I might buy one off the internet, though, Dave. Are you insinuating that's what I did? I certainly wouldn't ever say anything like that. <sighs> I'm going to get around to doing a PhD one of these days. <laughs> I just It just sounds so good, Dr. Bramwell. Of course Bramwell. it does, yes. It people, does. You can give people medical examinations and everything. I can't. Just yeah. please don't tell my parents. It would disappoint them so much for them to... <laughs> Realise I'm just a, a toilet cleaner. Um, okay, so who have we got today? We've got the return of John Higgs, author John Higgs, who spoke uh, many months ago about God. What was it? It was Saint Albans. It was about uh, about the, the mythical story of uh, Saint Alban. And I won't have that. Well, Our campaign's doing very well. Carry on. <laughs> and uh, and today he's talking about the the KLF. So John is the author of a book on the KLF. Uh, this is the band for those who don't know who who burnt. A million pounds, um, mm. and John explores uh, the reason why the band did this, and also a band who tried to eradicate themselves from from history back in the eighties. They deleted their entire. He goes into this. One thing he doesn't mention, which is one of my favourite things about the KLF, was the KLF Foundation. I don't think he mentions this in the talk. If people don't know this, it's a brilliant fact about them. Uh, they offered double the Turner Prize money for the Turner Prize winner. Uh, they nailed it to a crucifix outside the Turner Prize, and the only way that the winner could... It was for the worst piece of art in the world, was the prize, and it was automatically awarded to the winner of the Turner Prize. And it was £50,000 cash, and all they had to do was come out of the building, go up, take the money, and say, yeah, I agree, this is the worst artwork <laughs> in the world, and they got their 50000 quid. And did that happen? Well, they put the money up. I don't know whether the artist took it or not. I, I sort of hope they did, but I, I don't know the ending to that story. Well, actually, I, I say that I say I asked the question but actually know the answer because I, I've seen John give this talk a number of times and he right. does cover that story um, one of the occasions that I saw him and 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 the artist did but apparently I can't remember who it was it was a female artist it might have been the one who made the videos of those policemen right. and apparently she was quite pissed off about it <laughs> and you think well if you're pissed off don't, don't do take it. the money yeah, exactly. don't take the money begrudgingly yeah. I begrudgingly take this £50,000 how dare you yes. um, it's a nice story he tells it well but anyway it isn't in unfortunately it's not in this maybe we'll do an extra extended remix of this podcast sometime good. in the future when we've run out of material. I'm sure there's a and, market. And squeeze that in. So uh, here he is, John Higgs on the KLF, the band who burnt a million pounds. I've written a book about the KLF, uh, but to tell their story, I should really first mention a book called the Illuminatus Trilogy, co-written by Robert Anton Wilson, great American agnostic, and his friend Robert Che. And in many ways, this is probably the most well-known of Robert Anton Wilson's books. It's certainly not the most approachable. It's, you know, it's deliberately confusing. The characters are quite cartoony and so is the story. But it's dense and it's long. And reading it is like having all your beliefs and your certainties and your absolutes sort of shoved through a mangle. And then you're just left to sort of study what comes out at the other end. So when people say, where'd you start with Robert Anton Wilson? I don't usually say Illuminatus. I say Cosmic Trigger or something like that. But this book is important because it was turned into a stage play in Liverpool in the 1970s. The stage manager of that play was a Scottish artist by the name of Bill Drummond. And one of the audience members in the Liverpool run was uh, an artist from around these parts called Jimmy Courty. 
And on New Year's Day 1987, Jimmy Corti got a phone call from Bill Drummond and Bill said, let's start a band. We should call ourselves the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo. And Jimmy knew what that meant because it's all from this book. In this book, the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo, or the Jams, are an organization that's existed for thousands of years. And they were originally part of the Illuminati, the uh, forces of order and, and control in the universe. Uh, but the Jams were kicked out of the Illuminati and went to war with them because they were secretly Discordians uh, who saw the world in terms of chaos and discord. And Discordianism is a real thing. It's usually described as being either an elaborate religion disguised as a joke or a joke disguised as an elaborate religion. And you become a Discordian when you realize actually those are the same thing and there's no contradiction there at all. I like to describe Discordianism through that scene in The Matrix where Morpheus goes, will you take the blue pill or will you take the red pill? Now. Morpheus is no Discordian, clearly. If he was, he would say, would you take the blue pill or the red pill or maybe neither? Or, if you want an education, why not take them both? But in the book, the justified ancients of Mumu are described as being at war with the record industry. And it's only in there for a little staffed little joke. The idea is the Illuminati control the record industry and sneak anti-jams propaganda in. Hence the cry of kick out the jams by John Sinclair at the start of that MC5 record. And it's just a silly little joke, but it is the reason why a lot of teenagers these days genuinely believe that Beyonce and Jay-Z are working for the Illuminati. It's got a little out of hand. But it meant that when Bill Drummond and Jimmy Corti said, we will become the justified ancients of Moo Moo, when they took on that mantle, it meant that they themselves had their own war with the music industry. And at the time, Jimmy had just got one of the first samplers. So they were just taking anything they wanted. They were taking huge chunks of records like ABBA and the Beatles. Um, for reasons that you could argue were situationist inspired and, and, and which um, for, um, for logic that's still being debated in the current debates about piracy and, and copyright and things like that. But not, a lot of people weren't very happy about this, least of all ABBA's lawyers. And as a result, um, the majority of the copies of their debut album were burnt in a bonfire in a field in Sweden. Um, but they didn't give up. They lost that battle, Bill and Jimmy. They continued. And being good Discordians, they changed their name. They became the KLF. And the first KLF record was about that bonfire. And rather prophetically, it was called Burn the Bastards. Um, and they, they got better. And then rave happened. And then they got inspired. And then they got good. And then they got great. And then they got popular. And then they got successful. And at that point, the record industry said, welcome, come on in. We really love your zany situationist prankster gimmick. We can make a lot of money. And to their eternal credit, Bill and Jimmy looked at each other and thought, we've lost. 
There's no way we can defeat the record industry. Let's run away. So they split up. They disbanded. They deleted their entire back catalogue. They burned all their master tapes. They buried their Brit Award for the best band somewhere in a field in Wiltshire near Stonehenge. And they did their damnedest to delete themselves from musical history to the extent that someone maybe 10 years younger than me is probably unlikely to have heard of them because their music will never be used in adverts or in films or in games or Ministry of Sound uh, compilations or anything like that. And as an example of how well they've managed to disappear, there was uh, a, uh, an article in the Daily Mirror last week, which is originally entitled, KLF Frontman in Police Probe. And this was dealing with the fact that Bill Drummond had recently painted a UKIP billboard grey, and UKIP were not happy about this. And this article went up on the website, KLF Frontman. And clearly someone thought, oh, I don't know if people know who that is. And they changed it to ex-pop star. <laughs> and, the, and the fact that they were able to be forgotten to this extent is quite remarkable when you remember they were massive. You know, they had strings of number one records, not just here, just globally in America, in everywhere. At one point, they were the biggest selling singles band in the entire world. You know, they, they got the Brit Award for best band just a couple of months ago. The Times called them the second best band of all time after the Beatles. That's, that's, the, that's the Times. You know. We're not talking 808 state here. You know, the KLF were really, really something. But the reason that they can never really disappear is because what they did after they disbanded. Because after they'd got rid of all their music and everything, they still had all the money that they'd made as the KLF. And that was money from the record industry. And it seemed tainted to them. So they took all that money and they flew up to the Hebrides and in the middle of the night on August 23rd, 1994 they went to a deserted boathouse on the Isle of Jura with all this money in big bricks of 50 pound notes and they dumped it on the floor and they burnt the lot and then they scooped up the ashes into a briefcase and they came home and people said you bastards. <laughs> People were really not pleased about that turn of events at all, it's fair to say, and with good reasons. But bubbling under a lot of people's reasons was this, the logic that went, well, if they didn't want that money, I would have had it. I would like a million pounds. I would love that million pounds. They could have given it to me. That was my million pounds they burned. So you have to get past the fact that they were never going to give you that million pounds. Uh, and once you do that, people started saying, well, why did you do that? Was it a prank? Was it a publicity stunt? Was it art? Was it a protest? Because if we're honest, it doesn't seem to be any of those things. And Bill and Jimmy could only truthfully say that they didn't know. They couldn't say why they'd done it. All we can say is there was a compulsion. They felt compelled to do it. And that compulsion was so strong that they acted on it. And it's one thing to start burning a million pounds. It's quite another to finish doing that. 
but I guess there's a clue about why this happens. If you look at their their current artwork, it's a, it's a good indication into their different um, personalities. If you look at Bill Drummond's, the work he's doing at the moment, as I see it, it's mainly themed about recognizing and honoring those little impulses that we feel inside ourselves and trying to use those impulses to create a work of art. And often it's a small impulse, like the desire to just do something nice for people. And he'll build this up into a big elaborate thing where he, he bakes cake or makes soup or goes long distances to give things to people. And, and the UKIP billboard is in a similar sort of thing. He was recognizing the reaction he got from walking past a UKIP billboard and trying to find a way of turning it into art. Jimmy's very different, Jimmy Corty. His stuff, I guess, can get a little bit overshadowed by Banksy because he's been doing a lot of similar stuff at around the same time. And the art world kind of prefers the narrative of this unknown street artist to the narrative of an ex-pop star. And Banksy's stuff, what he's so good at, is just sort of nailing the gag. It's just that thing, bam, it gets you immediately. Um, Jimmy Corty stuff, on the other hand, though it's very similar, it's a little bit more unsettling. And there's a lot of themes uh, of state violence and overthrowing state violence and trashing stuff and burning stuff and blowing stuff up. So when you get these two together, that recognition of the impulse and the desire just to trash stuff, the burning of the money almost seems preordained that money it was never going to make it it was um it was doomed from the start and at this point they said we should probably stop working together really shouldn't we it's getting a little out of hand which is fair point when they were performing at the brits just before they split up they were seriously considering as an act chainsawing bill's hand off to throw it into the audience <laughs> they're a bad influence on each other they were right to split up. So they signed this contract saying they were going to split up for 23 years. And they've honoured it. But in 2017, 2018, it runs out. So who knows, who knows what will happen then? But until then, I think there's an important thing we can, we can learn from the, the KLF or recognise in the KLF. Because in our current culture, there's this narrative that says you get successful by knowing what you're doing. And you can see it in, um, oh, you know, the, the X Factors of the world and, and, and shows like that, where they get these kids, and these kids have, you know, talent. They have, you know, real talent, and they apply themselves, and they learn exactly what it is they have to do that the judges will consider valid. And they do it perfectly. And they basically, they do everything right, and they do it very well. And then you switch the TV off, and their music's just forgotten, because there's just nothing interesting there. The story of the KLF reminds us that it's not typical for people to be successful by knowing what they're doing. It's much more typical for people to fall upwards if they've got no idea where they're going. And if you look, not just in music, if you look in the places you work, the offices, businesses you work at, look at who's successful, look at their stories. You know, the, the knowing what you're doing narrative, it's fine, it can get you there, but it's not the only way. A friend of mine, Brian Barrett, used to say, um, the reason if you're taking a path through a forest, why you should always leave the path and wander off through the trees 
is because you won't know where you're going and you'll never get bored. So by all means, you know, do the right thing to be successful. But remember, there is another way of doing it and it can be far more fun. Thank you. John Higgs there with the story of Bill Drummond, the KLF and the band who burns a million pounds. And the music in the background there was... Do you recognise it, the record that was playing? Uh, was it um, Mother Mills? No, Mrs. No, Mills. I, yeah, Mrs. Mills. Mrs. Mills, the the, the sixties pub piano player yeah, singer. Yeah, no, no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It was it was the K, it was the KLF Chill Out album. I think the obvious choice for uh, for for background music. I've never, I didn't know they did a Chill Out album. I, I, I'm, I'm unaware of that. There we go. I tell you what, though, that is right up my alley. That sort of stuff. I I I, I love that. And I did. Uh, I asked Mr. Higgs uh, a question, a, a story I've been told about Bill Drummond when he managed Echo and the Bunnymen. Uh, where Echo and the Bunnymen did this increasingly uh, eccentric tour around Britain, playing small, irregular venues, uh, and they couldn't really understand why they were playing sort of our both village hall and things like that. And they rang him and said, you know, what, what, what's the deal here? We're playing the weirdest tour we can imagine. And he said, oh, come into the office, I'll show you, it makes perfect sense. So they, 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 they went in and he said, look, this is your tour, this is what makes sense. And he had a map of Britain and uh, the tour dates mapped out the shape of a bunny's ears across the country. Now, sadly, uh, uh, Mr Higgs told me that that story was untrue, <laughs> which is a shame. I mean, the, the original situationists, well, they weren't, obviously, but they're, 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 in pop, it's uh, imagine having a band of that intelligence and, and mischief-making today. It's un unthinkable in cow world, isn't it? It kind of is, actually. And But can you remember what you thought at the time? You know, John was saying about people having to get over that thing of asking, oh, why didn't they give the million to me? I remember at the time, if I'm honest, I remember reading about, hearing about them burning the million, and I probably had the same reaction as most people. It's like, what the hell were you doing? To be honest with you, I thought it was fantastic. I, th I, I, thought, I thought money is, is, is a sort of fascistic, it's really heavy, you know, it's a heavy thing. And to have that much disregard for it is brilliant. But apparently, Jimmy Corti said afterwards, we burnt it because we thought we'd have some more. <laughs> and of course, they didn't really. So at some point, they did regret burning it somewhat. I think, I think they did OK. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I think I know, in fact. <laughs> that, that they did yeah. all right. Yeah, because yeah, okay, I think yeah, I think Jimmy Corti lived in, in Brighton, where we're he based does, for, yes. for a while. And... Um, I think he's all right. He's, he's, I think he's struggling house, by, is he? He's I, think, okay. I think he's, he's getting Oh, well, that's by. good. I'm glad to hear that. That's pleased. I, I, think, I think it's brilliant because no one's done it before, really, apart from the, 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 the Mint who burn money all the time. Um, I, think, I think it's one of those unique facts in, 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 in sort of history, really, uh, a willful burning of a, of a million quid. I like that. So, look, moving on to more important things. Yes. Biscuits. Oh, yes. And, of course, it's not entirely unrelated, is it, Dave? This... Well, it's, it is almost entirely <laughs> unrelated, but we're going to segue in um, uh, this uh, our feature biscuit today, which is the Oreo, mm. um, which, as um, listeners will know, is is an American biscuit. In our in our previous podcast, we featured a Scottish biscuit. I see Dave Gizmo. holding out his hand and begging. <laughs> I really go, like. I have Oreos. to be. I have to. Do you like? I have to be yeah. honest. The first time I didn't see my first Oreo until until my first trip to America, and I have to confess, mm. I was genuinely disturbed by the colour. Yes. Because they look like a 
black biscuit, and it just oh, isn't. It just doesn't look to be the right colour for something that you'd want to eat. You want a nice sort of Aryan biscuit? That's what you. I'm looking for. A, I'm looking for a beige biscuit. A oh beige. shit! I've broken it now. No, look, you good. see, they're not. They're, they're fragile, aren't no, they? No, I like they're Oreos. They're not as well made as the custard creams no, that we featured in. There's Podcast something very one. sinister about the Oreo cookie because they're, they're not quite a chocolate flavour. I don't know what they are. It's like a charcoal biscuit almost. That's it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, charcoal biscuits were hugely popular in the 19th century, and they, these were started about 1908. And charcoal biscuits were so popular they had to put a limit on them. This is true, and, and gems as well. Not you know, ice gems, gems. The biscuit without the icing on. That was the most popular biscuit of the nineteenth century. Charcoal biscuits. And charcoal biscuits. Yes, made of charcoal. Well, no, with charcoal in to give them this sort of dark, sort of smoky. Probably good for your flavor. teeth because people used to use was it coke yeah. and charcoal it's to supposed clean to be their good teeth. For you. But I mean, I love the fact that they replaced the lard in the middle because of health concerns uh, with hydrogenated, hydrogenated <laughs> vegetable oil, so mm. trans fatty. But uh, they are they are created by a huge biscuit concern, Nabisco Company. Um, They're the most popular cookie in the world. And That's they, extraordinary. I've got to, I've got to say, sorry, I'm interrupting you, but but. But um, I don't rate them much. They would they would not be in my top ten. When we you know when we had the custard creams, there's something familiar and and warm and inviting and flavour. wholesome, isn't there? Something wholesome. There is something wholesome about. It. There's something a bit. It's not bitter. They only really make sense with milk. With m- the milk yeah, cuts it yeah, perfectly. You yeah. See. And of course, the one other interesting fact relating back to uh, the KLF and the Illuminati is that uh, there's many conspiracy theories about the designs on the Oreo, Oreo cookie that they've got. They contain the Rosicrucian cross and the uh, the Knights Templar cross but on the biscuit. So, and isn't that a swastika? Yeah, there is a swastika. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, oh no, sorry, no, it's a, it's, it's, it's a flower. D- during that. Uh, and during their time, it does look like a, it does look like an old iron cross on it, actually, doesn't it? Like the old uh, World War. Well, actually, one actually, what Germanic it could o- it could also be the the logo for the Temple of Psychic Youth, Genesis Peoridge. It's true. That's exactly what it is. Yes, you're right. Maybe he's involved. An Oreo is an ancient Greek word meaning beautiful or well done or good, doesn't it? That's. Uh, uh, but they also the theory is that it's just called Oreo because it's very easy to say. So you go, Oreo. <laughs> what biscuit do you want? <laughs> Oh, yeah. You can't, you can't even sort of talk properly. And that's not a very convincing reason, is No, it, I don't for Where that. did the name come from? Oh, it was easy but, to say. But, you know, if you're in the deep south of the Midwest and you want to deal with someone who's barely sentient, you go, oh, yeah, biscuit. That pretty much wraps up the Auditorium Podcast. See you next time. Bye. Well, we won't see you next time because we're, we're, we're in the ether. We will, we will hear you hearing. We will inveigle into your ears. We'll be, we'll be here absorbing your listening. It's good that we've done this well. It is. Is that, a tight, is that a tight ending? Very tight. Always tight with us. The Auditorium is presented by Dr. David Bramwell and Mr. David Mountfield. The producers are Lance Dan and Andrew Mayling. You can discover more about the show at oddpodcast.com where you can find out about upcoming events and festival shows. If you'd like to give a talk about something that you're passionate about, then email us at contact at oddpodcast.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at oddpodcastuk. Talks from the Auditorium are featured in Earnest Journal, a magazine for the curious and adventurous. If you like the Auditorium, then please leave a review for us on iTunes.